go on then you start freezing up no that's why i like to roll into it <laughs> okay, that's right, right. i like to roll into it yeah because <clears throat> yeah. we are having a lovely chat and i'm here with yeah. the wonderful jack hughes from wang chung and a terrific and very varied solo career including his latest album electroacoustic works mm -hmm. and uh primitive yeah okay i want to make sure i pronounce that correctly very good actually <laughs> <laughs> it's like french inflection yeah <laughs> well you, you're a lover of language very much so. and yeah. french yeah. in particular right well, everything really you know i find words and the sound of language the musical aspects of language oh yeah really interesting you know? that's interesting did you uh so you were always sort of keenly aware of that even, even growing so. up yeah i think so yeah yeah, yeah i mean <clears throat> i guess i got more sensitive to it when i was at university studying some of the more modern pieces you know yeah one of my favorite pieces of people by luciano berrio called the symphonia which has uh -huh. a lot of sort of spoken word effectively over a, a kind of crazy orchestral background you know and yeah uh, and uh <clears throat> yeah i always love that piece and there's some stockhausen pieces as well a piece called stimmung which uses uh spoken word stuff uh and yeah i just found it fascinating and uh i guess Foreign languages interest me. Not that I speak any of them particularly. But, well, we don't uh, need to get that far to actually them, speak you know? them. It's just the <laughs> exactly, sound, right? Just the sound. Exactly. <laughs> it just sounds so lovely. Yeah. There's an uh, entire comedy routine <clears throat> built in just the sound. Absolutely. Of that, right? I'm trying to remember <laughs> sure. who I was watching recently who did an entire bit of uh, fake Italian that was really okay. good. Okay. Yeah, There's an actor, good. Al Pacino. Uh huh. Did a full fake, and he would have convincingly bought it as yeah. dialogue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, your name, of course, is a derivative uh, or, der yeah. or derived from Jacques. Exactly. The, yeah, the French Jacques. Which. <laughs> With, uh, yeah, and of course Wang Chun. You know, you can't get more yeah. alienating than that, really. <laughs> <laughs> and going for the sound as well. Yeah. It means yellow bell. Is that right? Yeah, it it, it actually does. You know, um, uh, I have a Chinese friend who confirmed because I sometimes would sort of you know we took the name you know and yeah. found the Chinese characters and stuff. But you know, you go into a Chinese restaurant and <laughs> as you do and say, yeah. you know, what does Huang Chang mean? And they just look at you completely blank. Because you know? <laughs> of course it's a, in Chinese, it's not only the sound of the words, but it's the pitch of the words. As oh, well, you okay. Know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, um, which is like no. another yeah, layer of concept. That exactly. You have yeah. to get into. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So listening to, yeah, my friend's speaking Chinese, like she's into Chinese poetry and, uh, uh, just listening to that, I find fabulous. You know, it's like yeah. really interesting. You know? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, mellifluous. Uh, yes, is the word. Yeah, yeah. and also yeah. The, it's funny you hear those stories about people getting a tattoo in another language, yes. particularly ones with their used characters, uh, and they find out that it's not exactly what they thought it was supposed to be in the first place. <laughs> exactly. Someone's having a bit of a joke. I kind of always dreaded that with the name of the band, actually. <laughs> but no, it is legit. I think so. Yeah, yeah and it was originally spelled <laughs> Huang, right, or like H U A. Yeah, initially, we, yeah. Um, I I found it as a footnote in a book that I was reading on Stockhausen, actually. Oh, okay. Karlheinz Stockhausen, for those who don't know, is a, a German avant-garde composer whose picture is actually on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. So oh. he's not so obscure. Right. But, um, right. You have to look for him, though. Yeah, I guess so. And it's not to everybody's taste, the music, but when I was sort of... Uh, you know, growing up, well, you know, I, I grew up listening to the Beatles and Cream and then yeah. Prog and all of that stuff, you know. And, uh, but when I got to university, I was sort of pitched into listening to 
contemporary music, you know. Do you remember like the first time you were exposed to that? Was it at school or what did you hear it beforehand and then explore it further in school? I remember in school hearing some Alban Berg, who's a sort of early 20th century composer, but uh, mm-hmm. he really, you know, superficially his music's difficult in inverted commas, sure. but it's got great I don't know what it is. It just communicates, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an opera of his called Wozzeck. And I found opera really difficult when I was at, in the early days of listening to classical music because the voices I found really, like, comic. Yeah, <laughs> they're almost too pure yeah. in a way when you're well, first getting just, used to it, right? I think, you know, growing up in a, a working-class family, basically, you know, when you yeah. saw opera on TV, it was they were taking the piss out of it, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> right. it was either like a woman with a Viking hat or a, you know, so opera was just like opera meant comedy, really. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, so to then be presented with it, with people with straight faces, it was like, why aren't we all laughing? At yeah, this? right. This is I mean? a gag. It's almost like <laughs> classical music came to mean, oh, we're in a fine restaurant in a film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all the stereotyping that goes with it, you know. <clears throat> but then when you actually listen to what the opera's about and the way the music is being used, create these very intense emotions and stuff yeah. even though it's not like the normal run-of-the-mill thing somehow you know um but anyway yeah that it had a big Im- impact on me you know yeah so it's a gradual process when you're get, getting into it another is. form <clears throat> it really. is yeah yeah and i guess this the whole thing of uh like these days when people talk about you know feeling comfortable with art and being able to relate to it and stuff i always think mm, it's not necessarily great actually <laughs> right I mean? yeah. being challenged by something and not being able to relate to it yeah. is actually maybe a better starting point sometimes I, th- I think so too especially with film yeah i kind of like to be like what the hell's going on yes in, in a good way not like this is ridiculous <laughs> yeah. but uh yeah. like john cassavetti's movies i remember thinking yeah this is a drama mm-hmm. family drama i have no idea what's going to happen next <laughs> yes. and i'm almost scared yeah yeah no absolutely <laughs> no i, I kind of dig that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. what yeah. about film some favorite films or formative mm, ones film yeah um i have a sort of love-hate relationship with film i think yeah. And now, um, is that always the case, or was it after working with uh, Friedkin? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. No, with Bill, Billy, it was like, um, it really, he got me really interested in film, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and he would show me, you know, particularly when I worked on the second, on The Guardian. Oh, know, right. We talked, uh, you know, a lot about how that should be. Uh, I spent a couple of days with him, and he was showing me all these crazy Chinese, Japanese horror films yeah. and stuff, you know, and stuff. Uh, yeah, so it was very interesting. <clears throat> and I remember going to the, there was a, there's a big film festival in Turin, uh, Torino, uh, where they were doing a freak in res- retrospective. Oh, okay. And this is back in the early 2000s, I think. Sure. And uh, he invited me along to that. And um, yeah, we, we saw some films together and that was, I can't recall now exactly what we saw. Although we did watch his, um, it was the first time that they'd assembled his interview with Fritz Lang. Oh, I, I've seen that. It's yeah. amazing. It's that. really amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I'll put a uh, clip in on that because the stories told in that are just unbelievable. Well, they are, you know. And, uh, and, and <laughs> in many ways is. sometimes, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think <clears throat> Billy was like, yeah, you know, who knows what was real <laughs> and what wasn't in that. But yeah. nevertheless, but it's a good story. Talking you to a legend. Exactly. You know, and, uh, yeah. and he was fascinated. I mean, Freaking was a really interesting person to hang out with and his sense of um, movies and culture in general, actually, you know. Mm-hmm. He's uh, one of my favorite directors. Yeah. Absolutely. I think a lot of serious people kind of really rate him above and beyond the populist 
exactly sort of exterior yeah i think uh, too often he's tagged with uh, inconsistent or some yeah. version of that whereas instead of how it, i feel it is is that he's explored all these different areas exactly right and he does that thing again where you're challenged yeah with cruising or mm. many other films you're sort of there's no pat answer exactly yeah or to live and die in la matter of fact well, so, very you know. much so yeah yeah no, i think um without giving away any you know spoilers and stuff you know <laughs> the way that movie goes yeah right. uh, i always say to people i go yeah. listen you have to see this movie but do me a favor do not do yourself a favor don't look anything up about it exactly right spoilers are plenty yeah like that. yeah so and at the time you know i remember you know we did the out the soundtrack and geffen were reluctant to let us do the soundtrack in the first place yeah and then when we delivered it they were and with the song as well they were kind yeah. of like okay we can maybe market this you know I was curious um, about that process because that was right after your first big hit. Yeah. And and I saw in an interview <clears throat> that you were talking about the video or they were showing you bits of the video and you mm -hmm. said, oh, this is very indicative of the times. We'd have John Kolodner there, yep. who at the time was very supportive. Yep. And I'm fascinated with John Kolodner. I yeah. interviewed him once for a documentary I did on Whitesnake. Okay. And no, he's he, a fascinating guy. Fascinating guy. Mm. And, and so what was he like to work with? I like John. He was honest, which is not always the case <laughs> with in the music guys. business. Wait yeah, a second. What? Yeah, exactly. Hold on. Yeah. No, I, I can remember playing him <laughs> actually to live and die in LA. I played him the demo <laughs> yeah. of to live and die in LA, and he sort of sat and listened to it, and he, he said to me, "It goes down in the chorus." <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the first time as a kid that I really registered who he was. I'd seen yeah. him in Aerosmith videos, and yeah. the, the making of Pump. Yeah, they play Janie's got a gun for him, and he goes. It has to have a major change at the end. It's yeah. something exactly like that. Exactly. So he's got this. <laughs> I remember, what did he play in here? I think Waiting for a Girl Like You mm. was his, like, that's the ultimate American rock song. Right. Know? Okay. And uh, so if your song had that shape, it's not like it's got to sound like it's but got to have that architecture. Sure. Know? Yeah. And uh, so to live and die in LA, it's like builds beautifully for him. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. then when the chorus comes and it's got to go like, <laughs> I've been waiting. He goes... I wonder why we live alone. Yeah. yeah. For him, it's like, why would you do that? <laughs> when he would have yeah. something like that, what would the conversation go like? Would he be um, adamant or what was the sort no, of He would uh, just way? point it out. And uh -huh. then it's like, <clears throat> if, you, if if I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Of course it goes down. I should fix it. Yeah. Um, fine. You know, and my attitude was kind of like, yeah, it goes down. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I thought and about he's kind of like, okay. Well, that, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. So he lets you do it, you know. Yeah. But, but he wouldn't just sort of pretend he liked it when he didn't. Right. Know, and, Which uh, is a relief because I'm sure that, again, we've alluded to it before, but you must have encountered a, a good deal of that. Well, I, I think, you know, and fair enough, you know, um, especially a lot of times in the early days with Huang Chung, you know, these guys, you know, the guys, Arista, for example, would be like, yeah, it's great. It's, you know. But you could see they didn't know what they were doing. And and in a way, that that's okay. You know, we got a break because they sure. didn't know what they would do. <laughs> if they really had to think about it, they probably wouldn't have signed us, you know. I've um, heard a bit that sometimes people say, like Frank Zappa has this sort of a way of saying it, where he said, well, in the old days, there would be these guys with cigars who go, I don't know, yeah. but maybe it'll work. Yeah. And he said that that was a lot better than when the young hip executives exactly. came in. I, I kind of agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched that documentary on Frank Zappa, actually. Oh, the yeah. Alex Winter one. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, isn't it amazing? The, the archive alone. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I'm not sure that it quite, you know, it presents mm -hmm. a rather sort of jaded, cynical side of him or emphasizes that. I agree. He's sort of pissed off with the business side, you know. Yeah. And uh, which uh, is a big part of who he was, but. But there was also some kind of joy there because of the oh, yeah. the, the uh, whimsical nature of some mm. of the pieces. Yeah, yeah. Now he's fascinating. You know, I'm not a huge Zappa head. You know, my, I yeah. had friends in Nick in Wang Chang, oh, Chris yeah. Hughes, 
you produced Dance All Days and you know, as a dear friend. Yeah. Uh, both of them are completely <laughs> obsessed with Zappa. <laughs> every know, album. Chris has literally this vault in his house <laughs> with every, yeah, everything. Um, so I'm not like that. But but I do have a lot of respect for what he was trying to do, you know, yeah. which is treading this line between art and commerce yeah. and also very cognizant of the fact that there's this whole realm of contemporary music, you know, if you like, government-funded contemporary music, as he would have it, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's powerful in, in art circles, you know. Yeah. And he's a big influence on rock music and was certainly in the in the 60s, I think, mm -hmm. you know, back to Sgt. Pepper and well, Stockhausen sure. on the cover of, of yeah. the album. You know, they were, they were aware of that stuff, you know, and things like Revolution 9 would not be around if they weren't listening to some of the, Right, like contemporary government funding music, you know. <laughs> but um, and they did but, yeah. bring so much experimental art in general to the mainstream. Well, absolutely, yeah. And that to me is the, the fun area of you know, being, you know. When I came out of university, music college, uh, yeah, I definitely felt this sort of sense. So, which way, you know, do I want to be a composer in inverted commas? Yeah, know, or do I want to be a rock musician <laughs> and uh, and playing guitar and and also, you know, I guess I, I get, you know, being a musician or any artist really is all about infrastructure. It's mm -hmm. all about your connections, right? who you know, partly, but also who you can relate to, you know. Mm -hmm. And I did find it very hard to relate to the guys at Mucus at college who were, you know, orchestral players and all mm -hmm. of that stuff, you know. And uh, and I found it much easier to relate to the guys who <laughs> in rock bands, you know. Yeah. So that was the way to go, really, you know. Yeah. But I felt a lot of freedom as a rock musician to bring in you know all the all of those different influences and and i guess wang chung in a sense at its best was a bit of a laboratory for trying out a lot of different ideas you know sure and the opportunity to work with freaking and and to work on the sort of long form thing of a <clears throat> music soundtrack was was a real gift you know it's um, one of my favorite scores of all yeah, time thanks oh uh, yeah my pleasure mm -hmm. and it's especially impressive that you had no uh, visual aid <laughs> yes. when you recorded it. Yeah. So when I say we worked on a long form thing, it sounds like I structured it, which I didn't at all. You know, I just wrote some you know, longish pieces. You know. Yeah. Um, and there's <clears> more, uh, not to interrupt, but there's a lot of outtakes from that, right? That maybe we'll see the light of day sometime? Um, if, well, to be honest, uh, we used pretty much uh, <clears throat> okay. everything because it was, we had literally a week to do the, the soundtrack, you know, and it was like really looking in the bottom drawer for, <coughs> for some of the stuff. <laughs> that sample you know? will do. Come on, let's yeah, go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is a piece, you know, so like, let's record it, you know. But again, that meant, you know, like the piece that's like for piano and sampled cello. And stuff, oh, yes. Know? That would never get on a Wang Chung album usually, <clears throat> right. but sees the light of day on that album, you know. Yeah. There, there are some sections, you know, just some sort of edited sections that we'll put on the, the reissues, which is the sort of next big Wang Chung oh, wonderful. project that is uh, has been underway for years, actually, but mm -hmm. <clears throat> for various reasons, not least of which the pandemic yeah, sure. is one, it's been delayed, you know, but I'm really hoping that we're going to get the first three albums out in these sort of deluxe CD editions yeah. uh, by, well, by September. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And we want to do them on vinyl as well, but mm -hmm. that's, that's a slightly more, you know, the, the shortage, getting, right? Yeah. Getting stuff printed on vinyl is really <laughs> yeah, it's really time, it's comforting yeah. now putting the post, let's say post or the end of the pandemic. Yeah. That now there's all these shortages yeah. in, in a war. It's, yeah. it's you exactly. get, we can all relax. We, exactly. <laughs> it's more standard <laughs> stuff, isn't it? Yeah. But god damn it, yeah. And working with Freakin is interesting mm. because he again is similar in that respect in that uh, approach that you took to blending art yeah. or more outside stuff to commercial properties. Very much so. 
Yeah. Know? And I think he was a great reinforcer of that, that kind of like that approach, you know, as a, sure. as an artist, if you like, you know, um, that, that's your job in a sense to, mm-hmm. to take all these different influences and <clears throat> blend it together. And sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. And some people are going to find it pretentious and other people <laughs> are going to find it stimulating, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so you just sort of ride with the waves on that. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> and definitely the eighties was a lot of riding with the waves. Yeah. Right? I mean, the eighties was, uh, a time of great freedom, really, you know, and also a time of this, you know, the arrival of technology sort of in the center stage of any kind of music production. You know? Right. And when we were doing it, it was very long winded, basically, you know, because <laughs> trying to use a fair light to do a bass part, for example, <laughs> you know, just took forever, you know, but whereas now you could do it, you know, in a couple of hours. Right. Um, on the laptop with built in <clears throat> equipment. Exactly. And with very good. You know, samples of Fender basses and stuff. Oh, you yeah. have a library to choose from, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Fairlight, for those not familiar with it, <clears throat> you had to type stuff in, right? It was a whole. And did yeah. it have the light pen? Is that the yeah the light pen? Yeah, yeah well, that was the light pen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Fairlight was like literally the size of this coffee table, yeah. the main frame of the computer, <laughs> sort of thing. You know, <clears throat> and a and a good sample would last like three seconds <laughs> or something. <you> know? <laughs> right. And then you know the other samples were transpositions of that one sample, so it okay. was pretty awful. I think it was like eight bit or something. You know? Oh, it right. Like, it was really low resolution. Low well. resolution, very high price tag. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not a good combination. More than in those days, yeah, it yeah. was, uh, you know, I remember the, you know, it being presented on this BBC program called Tomorrow's World. Yes, I've yeah. seen that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Peter Gabriel had a fair line. You know, these kind of advanced human beings. <laughs> Tim, <laughs> Kate Bush, and Martin yeah, Russian, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Chris Hughes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, many long hours with a fair line in Abbey Road studios you know <laughs> that was my life for a, <laughs> 1983 <I think>. <laughs> <laughs> now, how long did points on the curve on the curve uh, take then it did to... take the best part of a year to make it mm-hmm. you know in very expensive studios you know <laughs> so and at the time i didn't make the equation of like you know you're paying for this you know even though it's not actually coming out of your pocket today sure it is in the future because you know? the basic structure <clears throat> again for those who are not familiar the artists would get in advance yeah and then you have to recoup through the record sales and all that stuff, but also you have to factor in video budget, album budget, and was touring budget part of that as well? You know, I never really looked into it in any detail. Probably best not. But, but I think it was. I don't think there was any free lunch yeah. going on. Yeah. Know. Oh, they're um, throwing a party for us. Oh, wait, yeah. we're paying for it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How much was that champagne? <laughs> yeah. No, it was, but, you know, in a way, it was quite a good model in a sense. It was a sort yeah. of patronage model in a sense, like, yeah. you know, the Italian Renaissance or something, you know. Sure. And uh, <clears throat> you got some great shit out of that. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, and as an artist, you felt very liberated to mm-hmm. kind of spend time and, you know, try and get things right. And the record companies sort of went along with it. You know, they were like, sure. <clears throat> so I remember, you know, when we delivered Dance All Days, which had taken, you know, it was at least nine months of, of working <laughs> on the album. And they were kind of like, yeah, it's good, but <clears throat> go back into the studio and you know, spend a few more days on it just to see if anything, you know. Wow. And, uh, you know, now that would just forget about it. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, we yeah. then in Air Studios, you know, oh. <laughs> which is where the, the story about meeting Paul McCartney comes up. And so Paul McCartney was, Air Studios was owned by George Martin, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Producer. This is in Montserrat? Uh, no, this was in Oxford Street, actually, oh, oh, okay. just, just yeah. down the road, you know. Um, but um, right on Oxford Circus, you know, so you were kind of uh, sitting up there doing guitar parts, looking out on the, you know, the 
lunchtime yeah. <laughs> crush of people <laughs> kind of uh, looking for their, you know. Couldn't get more London if you. No, it was yeah. very, very central. It couldn't be more central. <laughs> London, <you know>. um, <clears throat> and we were there, yeah, like looking at Dance for Days. And uh, so Chris said, mm, maybe we should look at the bass part, you know. And uh, so Nick was like, oh, I haven't got my bass with me, you know, classic Nick. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so I said, well, maybe we could use one. I'm, McCartney's basses, who's recording down the corridor, oh yeah, and in a very th throwaway kind of way, and yeah, uh, and he then appeared personally <laughs> during the afternoon and said, "Was it you who wanted to borrow <laughs> <Wow>. my bass?" <laughs> and I was really totally speechless. I can imagine. Yeah, I, it was quite embarrassing. Then I look back on it now because it would have been a marvelous opportunity to <laughs> engage him in conversation, but I just couldn't speak. You know, I was just. I think in the, yeah, under the best of circumstances, like I, we're going to meet Paul McCartney mm. in an hour. You still yeah. might have that result. Yeah, and so uh, to yeah. be surprised by him, exactly, a bit yeah. tough. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was, and and I think I was still young enough then, you know, to sort of be. Uh, overwhelmed by the experience you know sure so maybe that was the best result maybe. probably yeah mm. and it's like a nice lovely memory yeah yeah not that he's known for any bad uh, well it's good you didn't talk to him further because exactly. you know who he is he's not like Lou Reed or something <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> what about other folks like that that you met well in the, really in the early days of uh funny Langston? story is meeting Jack Bruce oh, okay so Jack Bruce bass player with the cream and in many ways after I you know if the Beatles were for me my you know, I was eight years old into the Beatles and there was a lot yeah. of sort of basically just fanboy hero worship stuff going on. Sure. Although I did always have this sense of wanting to figure out how the music worked, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the band after the Beatles that I got into was The Cream, you know. Sure. And Jack Bruce in particular, his bass playing, his singing and his general sort of robust approach to things, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, very musical approach to things. Yeah, and, but very forceful. Right? Yeah. And very like, yeah, the three yeah. pieces that made that tremendous noise. I, I think that some of his bass player thinking, you know, like, so one of my favourite Cream tracks is um, their live version of Sitting on Top of the World. Okay. And the way that he kind of approaches what is a 12-bar blues, basically. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Eric is great on it, but Jack Bruce's playing is it's incredible. I think, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of, you know, I won't go into all the technical stuff. Well, no, stuff. it's very yeah. technical and complicated, kind of like uh, like McCartney on, on, on steroids in well, a way, again, right? Yeah, yeah, because McCartney's bass playing has that great melodic aspect, you know, so you're in kind of J.S. Bach territory, you know, without running, sounding ridiculously pretentious, do you know, but it's like mm. the thing with Bach's music is you've got always got these equally prominent lines, you know, the melody lines, sure. the bass line in particular, <clears throat> are, are so independent and equally interesting, you know, and it's, right. so it's not that the bass part is just one right, five sort of thing. Yeah, you know, it's not just plodding along. Exactly. It's doing yeah. its own. Yeah. There was a, I don't know if you saw the Rick Rubin McCartney thing on Hulu. You know, I've not got around to watching that, but I really want to. Oh, you would love it because yeah. there's a few moments where they'll pull the faders down and, and Rubin says, okay, well, with your bass part here, mm. it's like, there's this song. And then when we pull this up, there's this other song. And yet there's these two songs going on at the same time. Right. So you really hear that, especially yeah, in that. Yeah. No, no, I mean, I was very aware of that as a, as a kid sort of thing. Mm -hmm. This was, um, it's, you know, just inventive all the time. You sure. Know? And Jack Bruce had that in spades, I think, you know, and songs like As You Said on Wheels mm -hmm. of Fire, you know, really quite challenging, you know, to sort of like get your head around what's going on and the, <laughs> the clash in the harmonies and stuff. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So no, no, a, no, that's the, that's a, fascinating yeah. stuff. I'm happy to talk about that stuff. Yeah, because yeah. also, it also helps people get uh, a way in if they say they didn't know it before. Yeah. They'll be interested in hearing about it. Yeah. And it's also a way to look at stuff that sometimes people can take for granted because you hear it on classic rock radio. Yes. 
and it becomes wallpaper. Exactly right. And it's almost like for a while, one time I thought, maybe Jimmy Buffett's a great writer, but Mm -hmm. I'm so sick of Margaritaville (laughs) that I never wanted to go past that. But then you think, oh, these are good lyrics, actually. It's quite a a well-told story and poignant. Sure. Yeah. No, craftsmanship in songwriting (laughs) is a great way in, you know, because it's like it goes past whether you like it or not. Yeah. Which I think, you know, if you do music college at all, you're immediately confronted with a lot of music that you don't like. Sure. But that is being presented to you as like, this is really important music, you know. So you spend a lot of time listening to music you don't like and then liking it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think, as I said before, it's good to expose yourself, not just expose yourself, but keep a little bit of commitment to trying. I really think so. Yeah. yeah. And the whole notion of liking things is, I mean, I know, you know, Andy Warhol, I, one of, I love one of his definitions of art. Uh, or pop art, you know, pop yeah. art is liking things, you know. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a brilliant definition, you know. Cause, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you know, uh, things that you don't like are equally worthy of your attention, you know. If there's a lot of other people saying, like, this is great. Frank right. Zappa being a good example, you know, it's like a lot of people say it's great. I don't particularly get it, you know, but that's my problem. <laughs> not Frank Zappa's problem, you know. Yeah. So, uh, well, there's that aspect too. A lot of people mm. in, in the Twitterverse or mm. online, people complaining about something not hitting their standards. Mm. And I always think it's interesting that uh, no artist is supposed to be our sort of daddy in exactly a way. Right. You know, or, yeah. like we're not supposed to like everything or filmmakers mm. even. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, oh, okay, that one wasn't as good, uh, but yeah. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah. Because to me, that's more interesting. I am, I'm more interested mm. to see. I actually like what people call now, they call it the flop eras. Yeah. Like with Robert Altman, his like late mm-hmm. 70s, early 80s stuff. It's not the best, but yeah. it's still, uh, oh, as my friend Jason and I says, the worst Elton John album is still better than a whole host of other people's <laughs> yes, records. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, yeah. I think being on the journey with artists is, yeah. is a great thing, you know. And that used to be a characteristic of uh, the music business you know, the, yeah. the classic Warner Brothers with the Eagles kind of thing, you know. With yeah. The, the and them supporting Randy Newman uh, yeah. when he was a lost leader, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And them saying, well, he's a, this is a valid artist. Exactly. We're going to keep yeah. it. And there was that belief in, yeah. of, he's a great writer. Do you mean he's not at the moment? <laughs> but, but he will. <laughs> when he does. Know, when the yeah. right thing comes up, he'll hit it. You know, and artists are like that. Then they're not machines. You know, they can't just churn out stuff you know they churn out a lot of rubbish sometimes yeah. did you ever uh, <clears throat> find that kind of pressure from the industry after the hits mm. started yeah mm-hmm. yeah i did and i it wasn't particularly good at responding to it you know because <laughs> uh you know after dance all days there was definitely a sense of like you know dance all days was a proper hit but it wasn't a number one record you know i mean it was a, i don't top 20 or something sure and uh but it was a, you know, it took a long time to go up the charts, stayed mm-hmm. in the charts for a while, it took a long time to go down. Sure. And that to me, that's a proper hit. Yeah. You know, you yeah. Know? And definitely um, register with people's lives. I mean, at a friend's exactly. wedding where they had an 80s band or a cover yeah. band rather that did all the eras. Absolutely. That was like, uh, they had to have dance hall days. Yeah. It yeah. stays with people. Absolutely. So after that, there was a sense of, okay, so write dance all days again, but just make it a bit more with a big chorus. Sort <laughs> Can of make it catchy or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah. And I was sort of thinking, well, I can't do that, you know, because as an artist, I think, well, maybe it's just me. There's a lot of contrary in me. And once you've done <laughs> one thing or liked one thing or whatever, felt positive about one thing, it's then like, mm, so, you know, the opposite, really, you know? Yeah. And uh, and I think the stuff I was writing after Dance of Days was, there's a track that will be on the reissues. You know, some of the demos that we did after Points on the Curve, I think are some of our most interesting work. Oh, wow. But it was deemed, you know, not commercial enough. And, sure. And, in a way, fair enough, you know. Um, but anyway, we hit a bit of a 
brick wall in a sense, you know, with this, the album after Points on the Curve, mm-hmm. technically our third album, you know. Mosaic? Well, Mosaic was what came eventually, but, but fortunately, Freakin phoned up. You oh, know, and, right, right. And we did To Live and Die in LA, you know, yeah. for me, it was the absolute perfect sort of uh, environment, as it were, to be in, you know, which was, you know, he said to me, don't write a song called To Live and Die in LA, <laughs> you know, you know, just write me some great music, that, uh, you know, get your band in the studio and jam, basically, yeah. you know, which was exactly what I needed to do, you know, and there was a forum for the music to be used and, and great, you know, <clears throat> and then I couldn't resist having seen the rough cut of the music. I mean, I've told the story many times. But it's uh, a, and, you know, this film has come up on my show many, many yeah, times. I have a yeah. poster on my wall. It's, I was rated in my top 10. Cool. Yeah, so wonderful. more than happy yeah. to hear. Yeah. So, you know, so the story was that Freaking did contact us out of the blue and we had no, I mean, I always sort of thought I'd love to work on a movie score, but I never thought that it would just <laughs> land in my lap. If you know, you know, I'm sure people listening to think listening to this will think, well, you know, how lucky were you? You know, but, but yeah, he just phoned up out of the blue and yeah, and said, you know, I'm working on this movie. Um, I'm using Wait, which is a track on Points on the Curve, as a temp track. You know, so just watching the day's rushes and having that playing a sure a boombox in the background or whatever. However, he did it. You know, yeah, and he said that's the atmosphere I want. You know, so I want you to write a load of music like that and mm-hmm. just send it over and I'll <laughs> cut it into the film sort of thing, you know, which you know you couldn't get a better brief for you know so um, or an amazing combination of a director who has such a musical sense yeah. to him because not uh, that's not often the case sometimes people you hear like ham-fisted yeah. edits and things yeah. yeah but when I found out too that he had edited yeah. that to fit I was oh my god because yeah. I had assumed I knew that the origin of it yeah. and I thought oh then you guys saw the movie yeah. and then adjusted it yeah. no he caught everything yeah 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 I think he did a lot of it that, that way, you know, edited the, the film to the music. Yeah. You know? And, you know, I did an interview with him recently in London. It's a lovely evening, actually, where they showed uh, To Live and Die in LA <clears> at <throat> the Prince Charles Oh, I've been meaning to go there. I'm really yeah. looking forward to going there. You know, it was great. And uh, and Mark Commode interviewed Freakin and, oh, and fantastic. Nick, you know, and uh, after the screening, I think there were two screenings and, and we did this thing in between and uh and billy in that interview was sort of saying like oh god yeah they you know the film was crap and then they played say <laughs> the music and i edited the you know and it, and it became wonderful which is typical him like very generous you know? yeah but <clears throat> i think the fact is you know the, the film was assembled pretty much and uh, and i think there were some very fortuitous bits where he just ran you know like the opening sequence yes where you've got this printing press running basically at the same tempo as the mm-hmm. as the track that was not contrived at all that just happened to fit together you know and i did have a sense during the whole of that project really of us being in the right place at the right time and you know i sometimes think with artistic projects you know the most important part of it is choosing the people you work with Mm. before you've done anything really Mm -hmm. and freaking chose well (laughs) you know in terms of what he wanted you know yeah Uh, so we were able to to give him what he wanted in it and all it all fitted together you Mm. know really pretty seamlessly you know yeah and i remember in some interview i read with him when he was talking about the selection mm. of, of you guys that he was obsessed with the album points yeah. on the curve yeah. and he said something about you guys having uh, a very classical mm. and european sensibility yeah. that he, he wasn't finding another popular yeah. music and he just knew from that yeah that you could do what yeah. he needed you yeah. to he do he was very sensitive to that stuff you know i mean you know, freaking has a reputation for being very difficult as a <laughs> you know i'm pretty you know, <laughs> sort of bullheaded in the business. You know. <clears throat> but um, my experience of him was as incredibly sensitive 
die. Do you know what I mean? I wonder um, if that's why he has to be or had to be so bullheaded because he was so sensitive and knew yeah. that that he, sort of tuning to the room. Yeah. Maybe how he had oh, to be. Well, I think, you know, he, he could do both, you know, and, yeah. uh, and felt comfortable with both as well, you know. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah, he's uh, yeah, very kind of self-determined. Mm-hmm. person i think and i can listen to him talk and any yeah, interview you're here with him for hours yeah, yeah yeah i remember him saying to me once you know success most most people can't deal with success you know <laughs> frank sinatra he could deal with success <laughs> yeah that's a good example i, I do like there is an aspect yeah. i think you just defined it for me or nailed it is there's mm-hmm. an old showbiz like yes. vegas almost thing yeah. to his presentation exactly when right. he talks and everything yeah, yeah. yeah. And what i loved about him was that he sort of went into making movies when hitchcock was still Making music, I think he maybe did like a sort of Hitchcock. The, 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 right, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah. Alfred Hitchcock, whatever yeah. this presents. Yes, he did one of the last ones. Exactly. Yeah. And Hitchcock, when he met him, he chided him on not wearing his yeah. uh, ties. Our directors wear ties. Yes, and then just swept out of the room. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so exactly, yes. And and he, you know, he was one more, you know, Fritz Lang and stuff. Sure. And Freddy, yeah. Freaking was, you know, incredible for me. Incredible mental capacity mm-hmm. you know, like, and uh, incredible and very creative like creative all the time or constantly uh-huh. switched on yeah you know i, I think <clears throat> when i was a kid you know i thought that you could be a musician you know like having a job sort of thing you know like yeah. so you do it during the day and then in the evening you relax <laughs> sort of thing <laughs> but, uh, i think i tried to do that through the 80s and got very stressed out and, and then I relax realized, it could be stressful yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, stop trying to relax <laughs> and, and just be you know just be kind of switched on all the time because yeah. that's the whole creative process is all those moments when you, you, you're not expecting to to write something or to you know get an idea and and, mm-hmm. and that's of course when the ideas come through they don't come through when you're trying you know mm-hmm. trying is not the way <laughs> right so yeah. in the 80s you found it were you tra- taking that approach of like during these hours <clears throat> during office hours or something yeah kind of mm-hmm. yeah i sort of you know come home from the studio and want to switch off but you sort of can't really you know yeah. and also when you finish a project you finish a project and you relax and it's like well no you don't <laughs> keep writing <laughs> Do you know right I mean? because it's either yeah. the next project or it may be the next song is the song that you're lacking on this project you know i'm sure yeah so yeah you just keep going but also it's if you're trying to do that, then it's not working. You just exhaust yourself. You know? Right. So it's somehow just being constantly uh, keeping yourself interested, <laughs> for want sure. of a better word. It know? also sounds like as uh, the same thing about what this people say about life. You must mm. remain present. Yes. And uh, it's funny because it's a daily practice, yeah. right, of almost mindfulness. Yes. That how am I feeling? Am I, even like simple things like, am I hungry? Do I need to eat something? Yes. Things you can overlook. Very much so. Yeah, because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it's hard, right? Because uh, yeah. working on something, you can get into an obsessive state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. You know, I mean, I found that with my the solo albums that mm. I've done recently. You know, I worked on those sort of living on my own in the you know one I did in this little flat in Canterbury, and mm-hmm. the other I did in in my house, and uh, and I would realize, you know, like three o'clock in the morning, I'm playing music like really loud <laughs> and sort of like getting into a mix or something, thinking, shit, man, I need to sleep. Also, <laughs> I probably am really disturbing everybody else on the block. You know? So it's like I never got any complaints and stuff. But but it is very easy to sort of uh, just forget yeah. you know, the realities of very loud music very late at night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Although that can be quite good, at least through the getting lost part. Yeah. Right? Did well, you find it that way? Of, yeah, yeah, it's an important part of it. I think that you do get lost in it. And, um, yeah, and then you sort of come out the other end and uh, and leave it for a while, and sure. then go back to it and have a 
sort of more cool listen <laughs> to it, you know, and try and be a little more, uh, what's the word? Yeah. Have perspective, yeah, in perspective a way. Perspective is right, yeah, yeah, and sort of make some rational <laughs> decisions about <laughs> things. You know, although with those solo albums, I tended to really indulge all the things that would normally get reined in a bit. You know, like sure, like that kind of you know three four minute intro on one call to video games and stuff. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's like uh, that would normally be like, come on, just play the song. You know, but, but it's funny because that can be ingrained, right? It can be almost you, you take it on as your own way of thinking. Yeah. The stuff that you hear about, well, people mm. won't like that. You got to do this. You have to do yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think in the eighties, you know, that that, yeah. I mean, you're working in a very commercial arena. You you have to sort of take it on board, you know. And everybody have fun tonight. Obviously, is a a good example of <clears throat> you know accepting that that song doesn't really work as a ballad, <laughs> which is how I wrote it originally. <laughs> but so sometimes concessions, if you will, yeah, are for the best of the yeah, exactly. art. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so Peter Wolf, you know, the producer, you know, he said, this is a great song, you know, it's got to be a party record. I was going, no, no, you don't understand. It's, it's ironic. Everybody is like, was like come on. <laughs> yeah. Just started programming it, you know. But yeah, it's like, so get on board. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. get him on a number one hit record, or that's you're over basically. You know? so <laughs> they had like, your soundtrack kids. Now exactly, listen, you've done it now. So you, know, you got it out your system. You know, so, that nine minute piece yeah, with no words now, on it. Now yes, we're gonna yeah, yeah. Now have a hit record. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> yes. And it was quite a hit record. It was still yeah. a hit record, right? It, it comes is, back yeah, around and yeah. And I've grown to like it. You know, having kind of found it, you know, difficult to begin with. But um, did you find it to be like kind of a millstone for a while? In a way, it was not representative of what I wanted to do in some ways, but in other ways, of course, it was, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I think, um, you know, that contrary thing, I'm always sort of pulling away from the obvious solution, if you like, you know, and, um, and I think on, on that occasion, I was forced to face <laughs> the obvious solution yeah. and, uh, and yeah, and it was great. And it gave me a lot of subsequent freedom you know to be contrary again <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah at the time uh, did you feel that way were you conflicted about it when it came out yeah mm -hmm. I, I think i was yeah um because even the video is is not your average 80s video it's godly and cream yeah it, the intense amount of editing i'm yeah. sure someone got carpal tunnel Cutting those frames back yeah, and forth. I, I don't think he ever edited again. <laughs> got the job as a... He moved on to directing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he became a bass player. Like, yeah. <laughs> Something easier on the hands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> more calm. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I like the video. I think the video served the song well in the sense that there's that slightly contrary element in the video sure. that it's so serious you know yeah. i'm so serious you know in, with this kind of raving party records right thing, you know but uh and you get the sense of that especially when you have a, a taste for the band or a taste for songs that yeah. are do have irony in them yeah and they don't have to be hitting you in the face with the irony uh, yeah yeah i mean i i do remember an a and r guy saying to me you know in america there are two kinds of record you know there's the record that you know draws you in and makes you listen. And yeah. there's the record that just is a boxing glove coming out of the speakers. <laughs> we like the boxing glove. <laughs> no. And I thought, mm -hmm, I don't do boxing gloves. Yeah, I'm not, uh, that's not for me, thank you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. But so were the pressures then alleviated or did they get more intense to conform to? 
I think for for me and Nick, the the pressures became you know because I think Nick was much more comfortable with being successful, you know, <laughs> and uh, um, so he was you know wanted to push the band in more in that sort of not not more everybody have fun tonight, but I think he sort of saw that we could be a sort of kind of rock band if you know what I mean, sure, uh, with a commercial edge, sort mm-hmm. of thing. and I sort of didn't want to be that. I wanted to be a sort of art band with a commercial edge, you know. Yeah, which so you we, had been too, successfully. Yeah, it for... sort of like pulled us apart in many ways, mm-hmm. I think, you know. Um, but but that's not unusual with right. with bands and artists. I mean, you know, the, the kind of uh, divisions that come up with bands. You know, well, it's very much are, like are a marriage, remarkable. right? Yeah, yeah, it is, but worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, arguing about arrangements. You don't yes, have to do that. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I watched a, uh, an interview with um, Stuart Copeland a while ago, actually, which was prelude to doing an, another sort of podcast type thing. Uh-huh. And I remember him saying, you know, because this guy was sort of saying, um, you know, so I guess you guys, you know, Sting, and you just don't get on as people, and and that's it, <clears throat> you know. And he said, not at all, you know. It's like when we're at Sting's uh, Tuscan villa, you know, <laughs> drinking the you know vintage wine and you yeah. know talking about philosophy or something, you know. It's like you know, Sting's deep and intense. I'm loud and annoying, but we get on great, <laughs> you know. But you put us in a studio and try and decide on a kind of arrangement. My way, yeah, you know? yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I find uh, you know Nick and I get along great as people, you know, mm-hmm. and I and I think you know enough time. Well, we did an album together, you know, Taser Up, yeah, you know, and that sort of worked fine, you know. But I think uh, there's still that sort of thing that, that pull in different directions that we have. You know? Sure. Do you find that you try to stay away from a certain area of discussion or a certain area? Of- Not even that, really, yeah. sort of thing, you know. But um, yeah. yeah I, there's talk about you know maybe doing something else together and uh, yeah I, I don't put it out of the window but I've got to arrive at that I think in one of my slightly contrary kind of ways you know <laughs> <laughs> and right now I am enjoying the solo projects and mm-hmm. um, I guess the most recent thing I've been doing is editing and mixing some live recordings that I did with my jazz quartet mm-hmm. and uh, and a band called Siddhartha who are a, a well, they're kind of a local Canterbury band, mm-hmm. but they got signed to um, uh, Universal in oh, well. LA and sort of had that whole <laughs> miserable experience for a couple of years you know, <laughs> before they came back to Canterbury. You know? Yeah, and uh, but we did these gigs. Uh, I, I don't know whether you've come across this version of Beck's "Nobody's Fault But My Own." I don't think so. No. So <clears throat> yeah, it was basically me working out a big sort of Miles Davis circa nineteen seventy two obsession. You know. Yeah. So it was taking. Beck's, one of my favourite Miles tracks is his version of Crosby, Stills and Nash's Guinevere. And you would not think of Miles Davis doing a Crosby, Stills and Nash track. Right. But he takes essentially just the first couple of melodic lines of Guinevere mm-hmm. um, and has him and Wayne Shorter playing it over this kind of Indian uh, sort of tambura drone and some very cool laid back drumming and yeah. it's a sort of 30 minute meander through the possibilities of this track and I adore it I think it's yeah. one of my favourite things you know and I thought oh I could do that <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> with Bex no, um, Nobody's Fault But My Own which is similarly kind of got a kind of drone mm-hmm. thing a beautiful melody and um, so yeah things fell together and, and I did it using Siddhartha who are a rock band with a rock drummer, rock bass player, mm-hmm. and my jazz quartet, who, who was a very filigree jazz drummer and an upright bass. And um, we put in a sax player and stuff. And it was just 
great and we recorded it and it got a lot of sort of positive feedback yeah from the sort of from the sort of prog press mm. unusually mm -hmm. rather than the jazz side although jazz heads were sort of into it anyway to promote that uh record we did a few gigs mm -hmm. and uh and recorded a couple of them mm. so i've been most recently working on these live recordings uh which i want to put out hopefully towards the end of the year oh that'd be great yeah and i'm really pleased with the way it sounds it's kind of um we do quite a lot of well i guess there's six tracks you know all of which are fairly extended you know? mm -hmm. but we do a robert wyatt song called mm. sea song you know, mm -hmm. which i sing and also a talk talk uh song oh. called merman which is off of uh, laughing stock mm -hmm. and uh and around the time that we were doing the gigs mark hollis had passed away so i wanted to sort of do my own little acknowledgement sure. of him as someone who I think really took a journey out there and made some beautiful records and uh, yeah. you know really achieved something great you know yeah they did very similar things to you in terms of exploring yeah that and then it was the color of spring the one yeah. that went on for ages that, yeah yeah yes. a year and a half or something yeah and, yeah oh yeah I mean I think they were excruciating processes <laughs> for him and for everybody else no doubt you know I mean he suffered a lot I think making those records you know yeah and you know, you might think, what's so difficult about it? <laughs> but I get what's so difficult about it, you know. And, well, uh, arriving at something too, especially at an earlier time is... Yeah, yeah. And I get for someone like him, you know, very self-critical, very sensitive, you know. How are you with that, the self-criticism? Much better than I used to be. Okay. Yeah. yeah. In other words, not that self-critical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. No, I think I used to be very self-critical, you know, to a slightly... Uh, you know, worrying degree sort of thing. Yeah. But I, I sort of figured out in my 50s that it was like actually totally destructive and uh, mm -hmm. and just stop it, you know, and yeah. um, and just do what you do and, yeah, let other people be critical. But, you know, yeah, just, and they will be. So yeah, the, exactly. they'll take the burden of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They yeah. do it very well as well. <laughs> yeah. And I imagine too it's difficult also when it's the product that you're making, for lack of a better term, mm. the art that you're making, it's all tied into your image, mm. uh, how you comport yourself in interviews and yeah. all that stuff. And so one can get a little bit too self-analyzing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the buck stops with you when you do this stuff. It's, it's your idea and and you do it. And yeah. But I, I, I think I was, I mean, this is again, Sounds self-aggrandizing, but we like you know, that on, on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Debussy, I think Claude Debussy is one of my favorite classical composers. Said, you know, when you make a piece of art, there's maybe five people in the world who who will get it, you know, mm -hmm. and um, and he was meaning that in a kind of like, you know, lots of people like it, but that's different from getting it, you know? right? And uh, uh, and lots of people dislike it too, and that's all fine, you know. But the thing is, doing it, I think, you know, and if you're an artist, then you have to do it you know it's like with these solo records you know yeah nobody said would you make a solo album <laughs> nobody's gonna say that you know? so but i just did it because i needed to do it the, the self-expression for me is through writing songs mm -hmm. and and recording as well you know i'm really still fascinated by the whole recording process and mm -hmm. listening to recordings and how recordings work sure sonically and emotionally mm -hmm. and stuff you know and i know these days well, maybe not so much these days, but uh, in the 2000s, you know, when, you know, the whole notion of recording started to become called into question, really, mm -hmm. and people started treating it like a photograph, in a oh, sense. Okay. You know, that yeah. it's like, so a recording is just a snapshot of how you were at that time, mm -hmm. and now you're something different, you know. Sure. And that's sort of fair enough in a way, but I still, I think, believe in recordings as like paintings. <laughs> sure, yeah. You know, so they're more 
timeless. You mm-hmm. know? And, you know, the great recordings, I think, like Sergeant Pepper and what should we say, Kind of Blue and sure. even some of the Carrie Ann Beethoven recordings, for instance, you know, sort of, uh, you know, they are great artifacts in themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean? Right. And, and they and, don't, somehow don't age in the same way right. that, you know, live performances do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, or stuff so, that has like dated uh, elements to it. I mean, yeah. there are dated elements to well, both of those. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. they make their in a way. It's an interesting thing when things are timeless rather than oh, that's yeah. of its time and yeah. just of its time. Yeah. No, I think so. And obviously, the perception of the listener is you know, some people are going <clears> to <throat> listen to Sergeant Pepper and think, oh god, yeah, it's sixties psychedelia. Yeah. You know, Where's the low end? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> listen to the new mix. Yeah. 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 But it's for me, they are, they transcend all of those kind of categories. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, yeah. And also, the use of re- the recording studio as its in- in own instrument. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. 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 And it's also. There's a great book on recordings. <laughs> I don't know what's it called. I think it did uh, Daniel Levitin write it. Perfecting sound forever. Oh, okay. Called. So, which is the strap line for, or a play on the strap line for CDs? You know, CDs oh right, like perfect sound forever. You know, yeah. which is now considered to be at best ironic. You know, sort yeah. of thing. You know, yeah. It's funny um, the, how the perceptions change because yeah. when CDs came out, right, it was yeah. that, oh, that's the only thing that's going to matter, and Absolutely. now people think no, it's just vinyl. Yeah, that's no good. No, absolutely. Where do you yeah. fall on that line? I still buy CDs, actually. You know? Yeah, and and I think for classical music, they are actually a good medium because of the silent <laughs> background. You know. Yeah. Um, and the length as well. You don't. Have to, yeah. Yeah. Interrupt it exactly. And for sort of like those big box sets they do on with classical stuff. You sure. Know, compendious. You know the complete works <laughs> sort of stuff. Is there CDs really good? You know. But if you want to hear like a great hear great sound. Then I think you need to go to the sort of Blu-ray type density of sound. You know, mm. you know, Mahler symphonies don't really cut it on CD, but sure. they do on Blu-ray. You right, know, they sound great on Blu-ray. You know, part, part of the whole recent uh, Neil Young yeah. controversy. The main thing I thought that was great to have people reminded of is mm. the sound quality and what we sort of get used to. Yes, and the little speakers that we carry around with us that are very convenient. Yeah but really are much better than transistor radios no. of the old days. No. And sometimes you can find yourself listening to just that and you yeah. do actually miss the depth you do. of yeah. everything. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that kind of, yeah. I, I, I sympathized a lot with his Pono, wasn't it? Yes. To, yeah, to yeah. Up, you know? Yeah. Well, there's a funny notion. People were like, oh, he's trying to sell some junk. It's like, no, he's trying. Yeah. As always, he's, he has an idea in his head yeah. and it's he's devoting himself to it, which is something that I think people should be like, hey, maybe I could do that yeah. with something. Yeah. Really care about something. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I think there's always been that thing, you know, it's like in the, I can remember when I was, you know, young, uh, I was, I was in a band, you know, like when I was 12 sort of thing. And I remember being, uh, we used to have Saturday afternoon rehearsals. Mm-hmm. You know? And going to the drummer's house because the drummer couldn't move his kit, so you had to go to his house. <laughs> yeah, you know? and uh, he had an older brother who had a reel-to-reel tape recorder mm-hmm. and pretty good speakers, you know. And he would sometimes say, "Come and have a listen to this and play me a, you know, some new thing he bought," you know. And, yeah. And sound quality then was like sort of, I mean, it was difficult to get, but it was considered like fashionable <laughs> yeah like, you know? sure but i think the the music business has always wrestled with convenience and uh and sound quality you know mm-hmm. cds were a very good compromise i think on that 
They, sure. You know, they're, they're very user-friendly. They sound pretty good, you know. Yeah, especially then it was, yeah. oh, there's and no compared with, and say, pops. cassettes, do you know, yeah. what I mean? <laughs> you know, which I still can't, I know it's very hip to release stuff on cassettes, but <laughs> I could never stand the sound of them back yeah. in the day. And, you know, it's not my idea of fun. You have to be um, very careful. Like, you have to basically home record a cassette for it to sound yeah. really good. The yeah. mass-produced ones just tend to not. Mm, well, absolutely. And I know I mean, a lot of people, you know, would use cassettes to record stuff off the radio and make their sure. playlists. You know? Yeah. And that's all great you know and I, it's not like i'm you know i'm not the police saying i don't yeah. use cassettes <laughs> do you know what I mean? but for me you know it's uh it's sound quality is important you know yeah and uh so i guess when i'm if i find something like recently the, the most recent piece of music that's blown me away is that floating points farah sanders album i don't know, oh, if I don't you've know. come across no. that I'll have to look um, it up. yeah it's an album called promises mm -hmm. and uh, i think it was the mojo record of the year oh, okay maybe the year before last mm -hmm. uh, so it's not particularly obscure but uh but that is an incredible sounding mm -hmm. it's an incredible piece you know and i bought that on vinyl and listened to it on vinyl and yeah and uh and again the the way it's recorded is there's depth to it you know it's sure uh, and it's an there's an orchestra london symphony orchestra is on mm. it as well and you need the sort of spatial width that a vinyl pressing a good vinyl pressing gives you you know right that's key and, to a good vinyl pressing because yeah. the crackly ones remember the rca dynaflex that would yes. wobble or you could <laughs> almost bend them in half exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Bowie albums <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah although i remember uh when i first i bought myself a good turntable and i use low as um a sort of demo recording because yeah. some of the low end on low on vinyl mm. outstrips anything you'd hear on a cd yeah it's the density of it is incredible you know? it's a remarkable album it still sounds futuristic it does it sounds incredible that record mm -hmm. yeah so um yeah <clears throat> but yeah you know all the stuff about oh is there really any difference yes there is there is there <laughs> yeah. is a difference yeah. you have a like a, a listening area at home well uh because I live on my own, my house is really just one big studio. It's not unlike this in a way. Do you sure. Mean? So what other people would have as a living room, he's got like good speakers and a good yeah. turntable and the computer and all my recording yeah. gear and stuff. You know? It's a different way of relaxing. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's, yeah. Well, like I say, you never really relax. It, <laughs> exactly. Even listening to something, I'm sure yeah. you might think, oh, that's quite a good texture. Exactly. Maybe yeah, I yeah. should apply that sort of thinking exactly. too. Yeah. yeah. Did no. you have a, a period where you weren't uh, making that much music or writing that much music before um, this recent sort of uh, uptick in activity yeah i guess through the 90s i was in, in a bit of a wilderness <laughs> really yeah because you know after wang chung split up um i signed to columbia mm -hmm. and made a solo record with them but i was in a very kind of <laughs> i don't know now i think maybe it was some sort of ptsd of being successful and stuff well that's, but, that could very well be and also the changing yeah. of times too now yeah. it's suddenly not the atmosphere well, i think that was the thing you know mm -hmm. the times really had changed you know from the 80s to you know nirvana and guns and roses were the geffen bands you know and, yeah <clears throat> and of course rap and hip-hop and sampling were the the kind of art music in a sense at that that point you know yeah. and i was not really conscious of any of it and i was still trying to make a sort of 70s prog record i think you know <laughs> which i'd felt i'd still fail to make with wang chung you know? so i made this solo album and um yeah uh, and it didn't come out. And that, I think, was one of the most difficult phases for me, uh, that sort of constipation, <laughs> really do yeah. ugly metaphor. Well, I mean, it's you an know, ugly process, right? Because yeah. you have all this hope and faith and your own self-worth in a way yeah. tied into this piece. And then someone just says, no, yeah. it's not coming out. Yeah. And you well, can't have it back. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And 
Yeah, so it's kind of, I mean, Uber fans are kind of like, when are we going to hear that record? You know, I think most of them have got it actually because it, oh, okay. it, it circulate for a little while. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I will sort of release it in some format at yeah. some point. You know, they won't even notice. No. They're too busy not. chasing something on exactly. TikTok. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I hope my Uber fans are still yeah. listening to stuff on TikTok. Yeah. And then you can just yeah. go, oh, yeah. that came out. I didn't know that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so sorry. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah. stop that immediately. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to put a stop. I don't like that. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think that was that was the sort of, uh, I think they did dry me up for kind of uh, a few years, you know. Yeah. Uh, did you find that it was hard to even get going on another project? Because it's that weird thing where you think, well, it's just going to end up like that. Um, not consciously, but I think something on the in the sort of wheels kind of just it just ran out of yeah. steam somehow, you know. And uh, but during that time, uh, you know, I did the album with Tony Banks, mm, right? And, um, right. You know, which kind of was really stimulating creatively, you know, because Genesis I was a huge fan of when I was a kid. And sure. So working with him and that that kind of. Because that album I did with him was, in a way, quite close to some of the, mm. you know, selling England by the pound type Genesis right. stuff that I loved. You know? Yeah, and um, <clears throat> and then I worked with Chris Hughes on a couple of production things, um, and again, I think those were actually really transformational experiences, both of them, in the sense that instead of being the artist. Uh, which I always felt was like, I've got to come up with everything, you know, to, you know, the vision and see it through. Yeah. And the way I see it, I don't want to get deflected by yeah. hip hop and all yeah. that stuff. Do you mean? And suddenly as a producer, I mean, Chris was producing it, but I was playing a bit of guitar and coming up with ideas and stuff. But it meant that I listened to hmm. contemporary records again. You know, sure. I, you know, I really got into the Portis Head album that was oh, out sure. around that time and Massive Attack's Blue Lines and Bjork's yeah. Post and those albums, I think, are stunning records. They are. As vital as anything that was happening in the 80s and the rest of it, you know. Yeah. And I suddenly, yeah, just started. And that's when I got into Miles as mm. well. Oh, okay. And, uh, and Bob Dylan as well, who had always been a sort of, not a mystery, I mean, but I always thought, yeah, it's okay, but it's not really my thing. Dylan. I don't know what you everyone's know? making a fuss about. Yeah, that and kind of suddenly thing. I, the aesthetics of what he was, and Miles were doing, I know they sound maybe very different in terms of the way you, the genre you put them in, them in but as artists, I think they were very similar in that <clears throat> their whole approach was, we're in the studio, okay, tape running, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, and the musicians are like, oh, it's it. Exactly. You know, and that, yeah, that sounded good. That's it. You know. Yeah. Which was so different to my kind of the way I'd worked. Oh up yeah. To that point, which was like, let's get the hi hat right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we get that right, then everything's in time. And, you know. Yeah. And like, yeah. That's not it. That's not how you make records. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess because you go so far in one direction. Yeah. And then the technology also keeps getting better and better. So it's easier to sit there and do like Steely Dan level obsession exactly. over things. Because yeah. also, in a sense, you think, well, I'm doing the right thing. I'm focusing on my work. I'm working hard. Yes, yeah. I am yes, working yes, hard. I'm being meticulous. <laughs> so it's got to be good, isn't it? You know? yeah. no, <laughs> that's not how it works. You know? yeah. I mean, it can work, you know, Steely Dan being a great example. You know? Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm still. I find it very hard to, I mean, thinking faster than I can speak, doing this live edit has been really interesting because oh, sure. I'm having to put up with my guitar being out of tune and not being able to change <laughs> it and stuff and, you know, and focusing on actually, you know, is the, the whole, is the energy of the whole thing that makes it exciting. Yeah. Individual little things, you know. I've had that with editing chats. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, especially during the pandemic, I got, I got like edititis and yeah. you're thinking, oh, that breath's a little loud. Well, I'll take that out. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, if I take yes. that one out, maybe I should take the others out Absolutely. and then just down the rabbit hole. Yeah. 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 And that's very much how it can get, you know. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing the solo albums, yeah, I was fairly meticulous about the way I presented it all, you know. But for me, you know, that the title Primitive it yeah. was all about the fact that it was recorded on a on a laptop but on a Mac. Oh yeah, yeah. In a in a room with a couple of mics and a and an acoustic guitar in the initial phases, you know, and then I sort of layered it up from there. Yeah. Know? But it was the means of expression as well as the sort of rawness of what I was trying to express. So it was incorporating both yeah. sides of the spectrum in terms of the perfectionism, if you exactly, will. Exactly, yeah. And, and yeah. trying to sort of take that lesson from Dylan of mm -hmm. you know, it's the, the spontaneity of the performance and the particular, yes, that version of it, you know, right. uh, rather than just chiseling away and trying to make something that's kind of flawed in a certain way or maybe just rather neutral yeah. as, a, as a base color do you know what I mean and then building on that yeah. it's like I mean sometimes that can work but uh, but these days certainly uh, an element of spontaneity in what I'm doing is really necessary you know? right mm -hmm. so something spontaneous at the core and then you can do yeah. a little bit of fine filigree decoration exactly yeah. around it yeah. so the best of both worlds exactly yeah. yeah yeah Dylan is fascinating with even the differences in the arrangements that mm. he uses in live shows yeah I didn't know he played Maggie's Farm the first time I saw him until I read the review the next day because okay. the arrangement was so different <laughs> I had the same experience <laughs> <laughs> I saw him at a festival in London and uh, there were these quite young kids in front of me do you know what I mean who were they were definitely after a while. I'm like, are we having a good time? <laughs> Do we sort of like, you know, and the band would be playing something and suddenly Dylan would be going like, oh, along the watchtower. And yeah. Like, oh, this is all along the watchtower. But it's like very different chords. Yeah, very different. different. Key, yeah. different sort of I've thing. always thought that it, no matter, thus, I mean, despite having such a massive catalog, he mm. could instantly double it. Yeah. But it's putting new words on some of those arrangements yeah. because they're like completely different songs. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Do you have any favorite eras of Dylan or favorite albums? Um, well, I guess the classic, uh, you know, Highway 61 um, through Blonde and Blonde. Exactly, those three yeah. sort of album, album, double album. Yeah. Chris and I had a conversation years ago about bands that do album, album, double album. <laughs> Be it, that being their great <laughs> moment, you know, the Stones yeah. know, leading up to Exxon Main Street. Right. The White Album. After, sure. You know, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> no, it's list, true. Yeah. List your favorite. Pink Floyd too, album, right? album. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even Genesis. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Album, yeah. album, double album. And yeah, then it's yeah. like, well, yeah. yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, for Dylan, definitely those. But I, I guess uh, Nashville Skyline, for whatever reason, is one of my Because I, I love the songs on that. Album, yeah, the songs are great. And also when he, he premiered that Kermit the Frog type voice. Exactly. I kind of like that voice. Oh, know? I love that. And yeah, also just yeah. sort of like him winking at everyone, thinking, yeah. saying, yeah, I know you don't, some of you don't like my voice. Yeah. I can do that. That's yeah. my choice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that, yeah, it's great. All those basement tape stuff are great. Yeah. Too. Oh. Just the endless amount of stuff that they've yeah. written, wrote and recorded. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that whole kind of time, I guess that 69, 71. 73 or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, 71, right. For like a lot of bands produced all this sort of 50th anniversary stuff that's come out recently with, you know, Deja Vu, Crossroads, Nash and Young, and yeah. John Lennon's solo album and George's All Things Must Pass. And, yeah. You know, those to me are just like epically great records, you know. Yeah. Um, and again, wonderful. timeless and mm. a lot of echo and reverb yeah. on some yeah. of those. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's Spectre, I guess. Doing, yeah. Yeah. yeah, for, certainly yeah. on those albums. Yeah. 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 Well, you talked earlier about uh, how important it is to work with the right people. Mm. And what aspects or what character traits would you say work best for you in terms of collaborators? Because you got Tony Banks, you mm. got Nick, you yeah. got uh, Chris Hughes, yeah. these people, and Friedkin. Yeah. Yeah. All very different people. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, but I guess. So I guess the question is what's, is there a, uh, 
not unifying, but mm. similar characteristic to those partnerships. Yeah, I'd have to really think about that to give a sensible answer. Well, then we can skip it or you can yeah. give a nonsensible. Yeah, well, well <laughs> I, I tend to think that maybe for me, the contrary thing is important that sometimes a complete contradiction, you know, from freak into Tony Banks, for example. Sure. Very different people. You know? <laughs> and, uh, Tony's not quite as blustery, uh, no, from my gather. And, you know, <laughs> certainly meticulous, yeah, meticulous to a fault, I was going to say. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Great yeah. collection of polo shirts. I've always thought yeah. he should put out his own line of them. I'm surprised he hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but then again, you know, who would I be? You know, I remember going to the LA Philharmonic with Freakin and I've been to the Barbican with Tony, you know, yeah. sit and listen to classical music, you know. Yeah. So again, when you sort of think about stuff in genres, as it were, you miss a lot, I think, mm. about in, in terms of connectivity, you know, at a root level, you know. So I guess, I guess yeah. what I'm wondering is it's some kind of spark that you sense mm. pretty quickly yeah. with someone in terms of working on something. Yeah. I think they're all like highly artistic and very bright people as mm -hmm. well. I think I, I think I like intelligence. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. It's a, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Nick as well. You know, he's a bright, bright guy. And, and how did when you? I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. When I met him, you know that he was functioning on a different kind of level that, that I was. Do you know what I mean? I, I sort of learned a lot from just being around him. And I think that's with each of those four individuals. It's quite interesting thinking of them that, like that. I learned a lot just being around them. Sure. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that expression that people say, if you're the smartest one in the room, find another room because you're not going to learn anything. So much. So true. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you yeah. only level up the more you engage yeah. with people that are. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Really. Yeah. Also really going for something. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it is. Exactly right. And when you met Nick and you say he was on a different sort mm. of uh, level, in what way would you say? I just think his, certainly his ambition was mm. like, uh, you know, he knew that he was going to be successful and that was that. I mean, it was just. Yeah keep going until we get there sort of thing you know yeah um and i think as well his you know i remember that first it was an audition really that i did with him you know and he was playing these songs that had a sort of jazzy steely dan type chords yeah but he was singing this kind of punk attitude vocal over the top of them yeah and i found it fascinating you know yeah and he was just very kind of like what's the big deal you know it's just like it's this, what you this do is what i'm doing you know yeah and, and uh, <laughs> you know uh, so yeah, and it was just it was just an energy that, that he yeah. had, and uh, and that it was like, I guess, growing up in a small town, which I did e effectively, you know, mm -hmm. you know, he had this sort of North London confidence and energy and stuff that I just loved, like know. a city yeah. sensibility, if you exactly. will, yeah. yeah, yeah, and a kind of to say entitlement is the wrong way to put it because that sounds ugly, confidence, yeah, but it was confidence, yeah, 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 and a confidence in assembling people around him who he thought were cool and sure you know uh yeah it, it felt good to be part of all of that you know yeah, yeah sure and you clearly had a confidence in what you were doing but it's a different kind of thing it's like a, not a street smartness but it's a sort of assertiveness when i look back at myself i think i was like desperately insecure in many ways do you know what I mean? uh -huh. which probably made me kind of quite open to a lot of different influences you know mm -hmm. uh, and suggest in advice uh, or yeah. suggestions but i think there was also this slightly sort of dogged kind of like Yes, but you know, I'm just pushing it in this way. You know, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a strange mixture. I, th I think you know, with artists, you know, you ha you have this kind of weird mix of almost paranoid insecurity <laughs> and uh, and a kind of sense of no, it's got to be this way. 
Yeah, it is a funny balancing act, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's just like the other thing we were talking about before about the uh, either perfectionism or rawness or the the commercial and the more esoteric. Yeah. Yeah. It's just funny balancing act. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Veering or balancing between those elements and uh, yeah. And the contrary thing with me as well. Yeah. Sometimes it's esoteric sometimes it's in your face and you know yeah yeah because back to the pop thing i mean i can't remember the name of the show at the moment but Mm. you did that terrific uh show where 80s bands known for being in the 80s -hmm. were reunited and then they did a pop song of the day and it's getting hot in here the nelly track yeah and quite a banging version of it i liked it yeah yeah and i and i like that challenge you know yeah and that was a great time actually you know Mm -hmm. being in la uh, again, because it was some time since Nick and I had worked together. I think that was one of the things that brought us together to work on. Oh, okay. You know, Taser Up and and yeah. to do this sort of touring that we've done more recently. You know, and you're touring again soon, right? This summer we're planning on it. Yeah, yeah, I haven't. Nick has been doing it pretty consistently, and I've been dipping in and out of it in my contrary sort of way. You know? <laughs> I'm in the band, but not now. Exactly, not right now. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm, well, I want to make a jazz record now. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm planning on doing those shows this this summer. So uh, so that's through August. Oh, good. And yeah. I think you're coming to LA. I know that there's some yeah. California shows, so hopefully I'll see you on that. Well, that would be great. That would be lovely. Yeah, I'd love to do good, that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I think we're doing a reasonable length set and everything, so mm-hmm. we've got to do <clears throat> some of them all. Catalogy. Oh, sure. Because some know. of the, the the 80s bands thing, it's like two songs, three songs. Two songs and you're out. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah, the old yeah. Alan Freed reviews. Exactly or something. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I'm happy to play Dance All Days to whoever wants to listen to it, you know. But I <laughs> they do like also, all of our set. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. But I do like to play <laughs> other stuff sometimes, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping yeah. for Wake Up, Stop Dreaming because that's maybe, I think, my favorite ah, song. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I really love that. Yeah. We'll have to dig out the uh, emulator samples. <laughs> <laughs> if we could go back to when you met Nick and we talked about sort of what uh, the character aspects of it, uh-huh. what were the circumstances? Because if I'm not mistaken, um, and tell me if I have this uh-huh. right, Nick's band prior to that was the band that Glenn Gregory was in before going to Heaven 17. Um or do I have it flipped? Your yeah, band. flipped. Yeah. Okay. So I met Nick. I see. I really, I have yeah. everything down, nailed down. Yes. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good <laughs> chronology, a minor detail. Uh, so yeah, I met Nick and he was in, he had this band called The Intellectuals, which I was quite good. Was, yeah. Unwittingly accurate name. And uh, uh, yeah, so we were The Intellectuals for a while. And that was with Paul Hammond on drums, who uh-huh. used to be an Atomic Rooster. And, oh, okay. Uh, amazing. One of the best drummers I ever worked with. God rest his soul. And um, yeah, that, that was a great band. It's chaotic, but great band. You know? <laughs> uh, and then after that, uh, we the, the sort of band broke up because, you know, you would sort of like do a few demos, do a few gigs, <clears throat> try and get signed. And if it didn't work out, that was the end of the line, really. You know, yeah. so quite smart way of approaching it. I noticed that about British bands at that time. There's mm. in America or maybe now and also then it'd just be like, well, we're going to keep this formation together yeah. where it seemed to be a very uh, business savvy yeah. sensibility yeah. with the Brits. And I think, yeah, and things were changing quickly as well, you know, from the intellectuals where it was like, you know, the clash and, you know, the sure. sort of punk bands, the Ramones were, were the thing, you know, by the time we formed the next band, 57 Men, it was much more kind of bigger Duran duran type bands, you know, with yeah. sections and, and stuff. Do you know what I mean? So, um, <clears throat> and that was so after the intellectuals, Nick and I decided we should step back because it felt like we're not really pop stars. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so we thought. And uh, uh, so we got Glenn in to sing and, um, and Lee Gorman mm. on, on bass, who went on to do Bow Wow Wow. And uh, 
Uh, Darren was on drums at that point in 57 Men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a sort of, uh, sort of six or seven piece band, I think. Yeah. You know? um, yeah, we were doing this, I don't know what you call the music really, vaguely funky. Yeah. Uh, New romantics. <laughs> it was no longer punk, that was for sure. Yeah. 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 More hairspray. Yeah, um, more hairspray, yeah. more shoulder pads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't work either. So uh we then kind of thought, okay, let's let's sort of shave it right down. And I, I guess, you know, that the sense of all these musicians on the road and just trying to keep it all together and all the different egos and oh, you sure. know, it was just impossible, you know. Yeah. So and I think by the that time you know, it's like, why were there so many duos in the 80s? You know, uh, the answer is because you didn't need a band anymore yeah. because you had drum machines and you right. had, you know, synthesizers that could emulate the sound of brass sections and actually sounded cooler than real brass sections. You mm -hmm. know? So, you know, so it was kind of like, I mean, we were a trio with Darren when we did Points on the Curve. You mm -hmm. know? <clears throat> but again, you know, Daryl and I think it was he must have been so bored out of his mind <laughs> for much of that nine months, do you know what I mean? You know, to do the old Tom Phil here, you know, yeah, and yeah. to come in and listen to us kind of tinkling around with the, well, the light pen, oh, know, the light. trying to rub out bass notes <laughs> and stuff, you know. So, uh, yeah, no, it was a. Yeah, you must have been seeing that when you blinked after a while. Yeah. It, it yeah. was a sort of, you know, Zen like process, you know, it required a Zen like mm. attitude to get through it, really. Did he ever come in and you go, no, no, it's okay, we did your part? <laughs> well, <laughs> th there was a lot of programmed drums. Do you know what I, mean? Yeah. I mean? Live, he would be playing them and stuff, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so he's, he's got my personality. And it did, you know, because yeah. of the fills and the, just the way it was done, you know. Yeah. Um, he was a big part of all of that. You well, know? the grooves on like yeah. Dance All Days or Wait. Very much so. Very specific. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Then it became a two-man band. Yeah. Officially. Yes. Darren left after Points on the Curve? He did, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I think, you know, he needed to do his own thing and he, he formed a band. And we sort of soldiered, well, soldiered on. We sort of went on. Again, I'd hit this sort of bit, as I said, a bit of a brick wall and then To Live and Die in LA came up. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that was, the fact that we were a duo doing that made it very kind of, we were lean enough to be able to do it in the very short time frame that we yeah. had and and we effectively produced it ourselves which i yeah. think again uh, apart from the, the title track which uh, tony swain mm -hmm. and steve jolly did um but um yeah that that sort of independence of we had a great engineer working on it sure but we were making the decisions about you know editing and yeah, you know how it should thing. be sort of yeah thing. and uh, we had a fairly clear idea of how all that should work you know how did that affect your working then with peter wolf on the, the next album well, I think because the sense was that To Live and Die in LA was a flop, really. You know, it wasn't a commercial success sure. a, for a pop band, you know. Oh, it was, yeah, yeah. And it's only, you know, later that it became the more sort of cult success, you know. And in a way, it's our sort of biggest selling album, really. And I think it's the, the album that merits repeated listening and, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't date anything like as much as, as the other records, sure, in a way, sure. you know. Um, but working with Peter, yeah, was, was a kind of... Um, you know, it was kind of like, okay, you've had your fun, as we said earlier. Yeah. Now. Here's Starship's producer. Exactly. And he's going to make you a number one record. Yeah. And, you know, do what he says. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, and, you know. And then after that, the warmer side of cool. Yeah. What was the atmosphere like working on that? Well, that was a more of a, again, 
contrary reaction, yeah. you know, which was like, okay, we've had the number one record and everyone thinks we're a party band. So now we need to, you show, know, show them how serious we are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wrong. Absolutely the wrong way to go, you know. Um, and, uh, and I sometimes wonder, you know, because I think Geffen after the warmer side of court were kind of like, you know, why don't you just go straight back in the studio and make another album? Oh. And, uh, you know, and listen to some modern music, please. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I think Nick and I, by that time, had sort of drifted apart so much that yeah. the idea for both of us of another six months in the studio trying to agree on things, you know, was, was inconceivable, really, you know. And uh, I sometimes sort of think mm, getting off the carousel at that point was probably, um, well, it was... It's it's fine, you know. Yeah, I, I'm glad that I went to music college and had a lot of options in front of me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, getting off the carousel is not a good idea, you know. Sure, taking Keep, a break maybe, right? Or yeah, take a break. Uh, which and, a lot of bands are not told about. And that's what these exactly. breakups are, or like early flameouts, because that wasn't a, yeah. like an early flameout. It was just more no separation. Yeah, no, I think inevitably you kind of I don't know what it is when you say it's like a marriage. It sort of is, but it's something else. Mm -hmm. The creative process with guys as well maybe do you know what i mean yeah that there's a yeah. sort of drive that that has to get through get satisfied in a yeah. sense do you know what I mean? and if you're constantly butting up against another guy you know it's it's really problematic you know? yeah because yeah. i imagine that erodes any kind of the affection it does yeah 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 it's 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 difficult you know but again you know nick is certainly a big enough person to get past all that you know yeah and i think i i got there <laughs> you know yeah sort of uh so do you remember when when it was kind of clear to you that you would have to part ways it's i think of it just like the dating thing where you're like oh this mm. isn't quite how it was mm. why is it like that yeah don't know why it's like that yeah but now after some morning you go well i don't know why i can't figure out why yeah i just gotta go yeah yeah i think it is i mean you can't possibly understand i still yeah it's sort of a mystery like it's... write it out for you do you know yeah. what I mean? but, yeah. but i would advise any that well, <laughs> who wants my advice, you know? But stay with it. Do you know what I mean? I think in all a lot of artistic endeavors, you mean know, take sure. a break and try and stay with it, you know. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you know, I I'm glad I, I don't have any regrets about, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I just sort of wonder sometimes would Wang Chung have kind of gone on and made, you know, fifteen albums and sure. done some interesting stuff or just got worse and worse. <laughs> you know. But then and, uh, you, you did know. the oh go ahead, I didn't mean uh, but, but I you know, I that, that period in the nineties where I got into producing and not being the artist so much. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh that that was really good for my head, I think. Sure. Know? Well yeah, you could and, you could participate in the process without having all the Exactly. Bonus being strictly on you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then enjoy yeah. it again. Yeah. It sounds like. No, very much so. Yeah. And then, you know, getting into the, the whole jazz thing, for want of a better word for it, I don't think it's jazz actually. It's more like a sort of prog. You know, it's yeah. getting, you know, when I was, you know, 15, 16 and seeing Yes in my local town, <laughs> you know, and yeah. just being blown away by that, you know, I still probably have that all in my system oh sure know? so yeah. it's you know yeah yeah once you like rush or yes it never really leaves absolutely you can never quite recover yeah <laughs> yes oh and something else i remember you said mm. in an interview that i thought was quite good and it applies to freakin and tony banks uh -huh. is that when someone gives you very clear instructions and they're very talented yeah. do the opposite exactly <laughs> contrary yeah. yes yeah. exactly yeah yeah no i did that to both freakin and tony yeah. With freaking, it was writing the th theme song, which he was like, "Do exactly. not." The only instruction: well, here's the script, yeah. but do not write a theme song. Exactly. Yeah. And with Tony, what was it? Uh, Tony, it was 
<laughs> I think it's fair to say, and he won't mind me saying, couldn't be bothered to write lyrics for some of the songs. <laughs> he would, he was meticulous about the music and had it all down, like pretty much the whole track done. Yeah. And a clear sense of the melody, but it was like, you know, write me some lyrics. And I think it was the track about the photograph, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, like that old idea of, the, you know, the photograph taking your soul or something. Yeah. And uh, and he sort of said to me, yeah, it's good, but I really don't like that line. <laughs> da, 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 da. You know, and I sort of went away and made that line the chorus, <laughs> the, the, the repeating sort of thing, and showed it to him. And he just smiled and said, yeah, it's really good now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good bit of advice, though, because oftentimes, yeah. too, especially if we, we're collaborating with someone, we think, oh, they really seemed upset about this. Yeah bit of it yeah i guess i should just take it out because yeah instead and that's a good uh, example of sort of sticking to your guns so as you will yeah i think that's very me actually so it is, yeah it's 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 a sort of dogged kind of getting the proving it's that this is the way to go in a yeah sense, yeah and not at all rational or even pleasant <laughs> really. hey, is there anything that you'd like to not mention in particular yeah. no I, th- I think I think we've kind of covered yeah. a lot haven't we we have yeah, yeah, I've yeah, really yeah. had yeah. A, a wonderful time chatting with you I've really enjoyed it oh yeah. fabulous yeah yeah good you look know, forward to doing another one sometime yeah absolutely it'd be yeah. great yeah. yeah I mean as the projects roll yeah, on yeah absolutely and stuff, and it'd be kind of cool to talk about the, the Wang Chung reissue it'd be wonderful at some point. yeah I, I, yeah I'd actually like to do even like a kind of very specific one about that. Yeah. Because going over the eras and the, yeah. the recording processes, et cetera, because yeah. I'm quite interested yeah. in those. No, I think uh, there's, a, there's a whole kind of history of recording. You know, when you talk about, yeah. you know, the hi-fi and stuff, you know. Oh, absolutely. And also the lack of it, you know. <laughs> and also looking at the 80s through that lens yeah. of the technology changing. Yeah. And also the commercial landscape of pop music. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, with the 80s, I sometimes would think back and think, you know, what is all the fuss about the 80s, you know, it's, but then i sort of think back to some of the bands that were around and i think like the blue nile and right the comsat angels and these bands that were not so high profile talk talk another band you know who were commercial but they were nevertheless doing some really interesting sort of art rock kind of things you know much like wang chung really because that's where i I, like class you guys yeah it's like really interesting stuff and even made even more interesting by the high watermark commercially of everybody have fun tonight yeah and a song also there's something to be said for a song that people who don't know music that well but go to weddings yes or go to other things or sporting events yeah uh, a song that communicates to them exactly which that song does yeah and that was always something that really appealed to me about being a rock musician and and having that ability to sort of connect with, with, with people, you know. Yeah. And I, and I do remember times, you know, when we, particularly more recently when we've done the touring and stuff, and you going up on stage and a guy sort of grabbing my arm and saying like, "I met my wife dancing to everybody have fun tonight." Do you know, <laughs> we love you guys. And you just yeah. think, oh, that's just so great. Do you know? Yeah. I mean? You know, and some people who are just really such massive fans of it. Do you know I mean who are not particularly music fans? Do you know what I mean? But for whatever reason, it hit them at a certain point in their lives and and they stay you know loyal to it and it means something to them and that's wow you know that that's an incredible thing to experience you know sure and i'm sure only more so because you had the extended break away yeah because you can assume something about something exactly and um put it away and then you go back and you feel that stuff and also your relationship with nick yeah which is you know I mean, with Nick and I are closer than we've ever been, I think, you know. That's wonderful. And it really is great, yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for yeah. your time, Jack. It's been wonderful talking to you, and I look yeah, forward to the next Craig. time. Yeah, really look forward to it. Thank you.